Welcome to the Michigan Opportunity, an economic development podcast featuring candid conversations with business leaders across Michigan. You'll hear firsthand accounts from Michigan business leaders and innovators about how the state is driving job growth and business investment, supporting a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem, building vibrant communities, and helping to attract and retain one of the most diverse and significant workforces in the nation. Hello, I'm your host today, Ed Clementi, and today we're fortunate to have Dr. Alec Gallimore. He's the Dean of Engineering at the University of Michigan. Welcome to the show. Hey, Dr. it's great to great to be here. Thanks, Ed. And I know you gave me permission to call you Alec, just so the, the listeners don't think I'm being rude. But uh, I'm really excited about this because I've sort of, I'm older than you, so I sort of grew up as a NASA baby a little bit. And, uh, you know, I know we're going to talk about a lot of things, but for me, it was always a big deal. And, you know, and someone that's taught U.S. history, even at a university level in different places, I really think that um, the history of NASA is really kind of the story of how America kind of like created this whole new era of technology, too, in a way. But I know you'll talk about that some more. And I should mention a couple other things. You are the the dean is the Robert Vlasic Dean of Engineering. And I want you to explain what is, this is a big deal, but you probably know it better than me, but what is a member of the National Academy of Engineering? Well, uh, Ed, I may call you Ed. Assume, Absolutely. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Trust me, I could give you my nicknames, but it take too long. Well, Ed, uh, being a member of National Academy of Engineering is often said to be the highest honor an engineer could get in the United States. Um, uh, we we have a very small number of engineers who get in every year, and it's based on essentially lifetime achievement in, and contribution to the field of engineering. In, in my uh, case, my citation was about both advancing advanced spacecraft propulsion technology, that is plasma-based propulsion, which uh, we'll talk about later on, but also equally important to me, workforce development. I've graduated 45 PhD students, some of whom are professors, including at the University of Michigan and work in industry and government and so on and so forth. So um, so it uh, was an honor for me to have been elected back in 2019. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, it's sort of like the pinnacle of like physics and science. And I know that uh, for someone that wasn't great in either one of those su subjects, but, uh, but I always appreciated the value of them. You know, I know how to drive a car, but I always am amazed by it moves around. So I know the engineers are critical and I played rugby quite a while for university of Michigan. It was like a club side, but I worked with a lot of your engineers. I'm sure students you might've had, and you know, they just love the program there and I know it's a great program. So congratulations on doing that. And yeah. And just, as because I know it's kind of confusing because it's engineering. So is there specialties within engineering? This sounds like a basic question. So could you break down like sort of the major engineering? What falls under your sort of bailiwick? Yeah. So let me give context for Michigan engineering. First of all, we go back to 1854 and we're the second oldest uh, academic unit on campus behind literature, science and arts. And uh, we have 14 academic departments, uh, about 17 undergraduate majors. 60 master's programs and about 30 graduate credentials or so, a large number of programs. We have about 12,000 students, 700 faculty members and about 900 staff members. And a fun fact, we are in 63 buildings in the College of Engineering. So it's- uh, Wait, say that number again? 63 buildings. We're in 63 buildings in the College of Engineering. Yeah. 
it's it's a big complex and um so uh not only to be being one of the nation's oldest engineering colleges we have many firsts we're the first aeronautics program in the country the first mechanical engineering first computer engineering first nuclear engineering etc so a lot of firsts our latest department is robotics so we do anything from robotics to aerospace engineering, mechanical engineering, material science, chemical engineering, climate and space sciences, you know, nuclear, naval architecture, marine engineering, biomedical, you name it. We, we're, we're sort of a uh, cross the board, a comprehensive engineering program. As a side sort of question, I figured that I was in the legislature before, but I remember when someone told me they went to the Naval Engineering School, you know, and I'm like, it seemed kind of weird that it was a landlocked university that you're, but you guys designed quite a few of the, of our U.S. Naval fleet too, haven't you? Yeah, our department is, we'd nickname it NAME, even though it's spelt like NAME, Naval Architecture Marine Engineering. But yeah, we have strong programs with the Navy. We do a lot of work divide, uh, designing their systems, their ships and submarines and things of that nature. We have a lot of um, ROTC students who uh, are undergraduates at Michigan and, may st- and be in the Navy department. We also recruit Navy graduate students, actually. People who want to get their master's or even their PhD and uh, continue their service in the Navy. And um, it's our smallest uh, department. Uh, but it, as they say, they're small, but very mighty. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, why don't you also, I know you've got sort of a, uh, can you explain a little bit too about the Plasma Dynamics and Electric Propulsion Laboratory? And then your sort of side project, or I don't know if it's a side project, but what else you do beyond just the, actually, I should mention your actual rocket scientist, and we're going to break that down some more later, but could you explain a little bit about the plasma dynamics part of this? Yeah. um, You know, I started uh, 30 years ago. I was a graduate student um, at Princeton University, and then I received a call um, from a professor at the University of Michigan who was a chair, department chair of uh, aerospace engineering, saying, we have this big vacuum chamber that was built uh, to support the Apollo program. It was built um, in the early 60s. It was built before I was built, as a matter of fact. And um, they said, we want to try to figure out what to do with this vacuum chamber. And, and a vacuum chamber, is you can think of it as a big steel can where you remove almost all the air from inside so it simulates the vacuum of space. And so when you have technologies that are operating in space, you want to simulate the ultra-low pressure of the vacuum of space. So this um, professor, this chair, is very prescient, and he thought that perhaps advanced spacecraft propulsion, uh, which of course needs to operate in the vacuum of space, could benefit from having the chamber. Now, this chamber is 20 by 30 feet. To give you an idea, 20 by 30 inches would be a large chamber at a university. So it's quite a bit larger in fact, it is than most uh, chambers at universities. And as a matter of fact, it is the largest vacuum chamber at any university, certainly in the country, perhaps in the world. And so I was brought in. Wait again. When was it built? It was built in 1962. And it. it's still viable. It's well, it, it's, it was it was, you know, the old idea they over engineered things back. Then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so it was very it was built by the Chicago Bridge building company, believe it or not, iron bridge building company. Oh, okay. And so it's a, it's a it's it's a tank of a chamber, if I can use that term. And so, yeah, it was quite viable still then. What we've done over the decades, though, is we've modernized it, we've upgraded the pumps, we've made it much more capable to be able to 
pump out all the air and, and, and other gases that are inside. We've added robotic systems and laser systems. And the reason we do that is because we develop in the Plasma Dynamics Electric Propulsion Laboratory plasma thrusters. And you can think of a, you want me to explain a plasma thruster? Is now a good point? Well, was, yes, I just want to make sure I understand it because <laughs> I'm probably the average level of the listeners. So okay. go ahead. So the name of the lab is Plasma Dynamics and Electric Propulsion. And the idea behind the name is plasma is the fourth state of matter. You can think of it as if you take a gas and you add a lot of energy to it, so it becomes super hot, 100,000 degrees, million degrees or so, it creates this state where the gas becomes charged particles, essentially charged state. And that become, that's called a plasma. And once you have that state, you can actually do some amazing things with it. You can use electric fields and magnetic fields to contain and accelerate the plasma at very high speeds. And that's what produces the thrust in these devices. And electric propulsion, all that means is that we are creating the plasma in these thrusters by using the electric power that's supplied by the spacecraft. So the spacecraft might convert sunlight into electricity through uh, photovoltaic solar arrays. We take that electricity and we create plasma, and then we use electromagnetic fields to shoot the plasma at very high speeds, and that produces thrust. So PEPL, Plasma Dynamics and Electric Propulsion Laboratory, is actually a laboratory at the University of Michigan that works with NASA, Department of Defense, companies like Lockheed Martin and SpaceX to develop and test these type of plasma thrusters for spacecraft propulsion. So does that mean NASA and Lockheed and a lot of these, you know, in the aerospace industry, are they coming to Ann Arbor quite a bit? Are they testing? Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, all those companies I've mentioned and organizations I've mentioned have tested it by, uh, at the chamber, at the at PEPL, as a matter of fact. And in some cases, for instance, NASA and the Air Force, they may give us grant money to develop our own thrusters, if you will, with that funding that we'll test at our chamber. In one case, back in 2017, NASA gave us money to develop the world's most powerful plasma thruster that we tested both in Ann Arbor and also at their, one of their NASA facilities in Cleveland, Ohio. We set a number of world records that year in terms of most thrust and power and current for these devices, roughly 50 times the power of what's used in orbit right now. But it's a prototype for the type of plasma drive that would be used to send astronauts to Mars and bring them back safely. You're listening to the Michigan Opportunity, featuring candid conversations with Michigan business leaders on what makes Michigan a leading state to live, work and play. Listen to more episodes at michiganbusiness.org forward slash podcast. I think it's time for a little history lesson, too, here. So. Tell people what the rocket panel was, because I find that fascinating until you told me about it just the other day. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. Um, Michigan was actually engaged in the space business at the very beginning of the space age. We have a laboratory called the Space Physics Research Laboratory, SPRL, that actually was doing some of the early measurements to understand the upper atmosphere, or the edge of space, by taking captured German rockets from World War II and sending on these high altitude elliptical uh, trips, these missions, and collecting information about, believe it or not, plasma, that word again, in the upper atmosphere so that NASA could determine how to send payloads and eventually people into space. 
So uh, the rocket panel is this uh, group of researchers, civilian researchers, that would get together and help us think about what role the U.S. government should play in space, especially the civilian use of space. And in 1957, uh, they assembled here at, in Ann Arbor, in fact, at the Michigan League, the Rocket. Oh, yes. Yeah, I've been in the building many times. Yeah. Yeah, they assembled there in the League. And what they decided to do is we need a civilian space agency to augment what the military was doing in space. And they looked at one agency that was uh, developing airfoils for air, for aircraft and so on called NACA. They used that as the basis of the model. And they came up with this concept, which eventually became NASA. So one can argue that the birth of NASA actually was in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the League in 1957. So as a history nut, I noticed it's 1957. That's exactly the same year Sputnik went up. Is this a reaction to Sputnik? Indeed, it is. Indeed, it is. And the thought was, we did not want to have the presence in space only to be uh, the Department of Defense, like the Navy and so on and so forth. We wanted civilian exploration of space. And could you mention, you don't have to give their names, but you've had a ton of astronauts uh, go to school or get their degrees there too, right? 22. Yeah. <laughs> and counting, yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> living and deceased astronauts are among not only our alumni base, but actually our faculty, believe it or not. And so we've actually had two all Michigan missions, one in 1965, which is a two person Gemini spacecraft, Gemini 4 to be exact, which orbited the Earth, both of them are Michigan alum, and one of the moon missions, Apollo 15 in 1971, all three astronauts, two landed on the moon, one who stayed in orbit around the moon, all three are are Wolverines. Wow, that's tremendous. And I, I'm going to jump around a little bit on you only because I love everything. And I know I could probably do just three hours with you. But <laughs> uh, but I want to also tie in a little bit too, sort of like the uh, angle, and everyone's probably seen the movie Hidden Figures, but could you elaborate that a little bit? Because I find that fascinating too. Yeah, well, it's interesting. If, if one reads the book, one will actually see the University of Michigan mentioned a number of times because University of Michigan was, frankly, one of the um, early and only producers of science and, and technology talent among the African-American communities back in the, uh, in the 50s. And in fact, there's one person who is a human computer uh, named uh, Dorothy Hoover, for example, uh, who uh, the author of Hidden Figures, Margaret Lee Shutterly, mentions as paving the way for women uh, who... Uh, uh, become computers, of course, at NASA, as we know. And she, uh, Dorothy Hoover, received her PhD in mathematics uh, from the University of Michigan in the 1950s. And just to give you some context of what a big deal that was, back then, in, in the 1950s or so, only 16 African Americans had been awarded PhDs in mathematics in the United States. Well, in the U.S., wow. 40% of that was that number came from the University of Michigan. Yeah, and I would imagine there weren't even that many African-Americans, period, at the university. Correct. Because I know even the sports teams were hardly integrated by Correct. them. Even. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And in fact, it was kind of interesting because back in 2017, I had the opportunity of hosting Margalee Shutterly in an event here in, at Michigan Engineering, where I had the opportunity to interview her. 
And I'm sure she was intrigued just by the visual of my being the dean of engineering, uh, given the book, and saying, wow, I guess that is the definition of progress in society. Yeah, no, no, no. It's uh, just... It's just like a that could be almost like a special just by itself, just on that documentary. Um, and, you know, breaking down just a little bit further, the um, the idea, too, and this is going to sort of tie into one of your questions anyway, but you do a lot with uh, diversity, equity and inclusion. But can you give some of the sort of neat projects you're doing? I know you mentioned to me, but I think it's fascinating how you're working with you know, underserved populations right now, too. Yeah. So thanks for that question. Um, in a given year, the College of Engineering interacts with over 6,000 K-12 students. Um, and so uh, we have one facility at the University of Michigan Detroit Center in downtown Detroit called the MES, Michigan Engineering Zone. And the MES is a really interesting uh, program. We have two projects there, one in which we work with Detroit public high school students to build robots as part of the National First Robotics Competition. And there we have professional engineers from the region as well as our own students, so pre-professional engineering students, if you will, uh, working with these high school students to develop these amazing robots. Uh, we're working with the Detroit Public Schools, the Educational Achievement Authority, and of course, First Robotics in this. We also have a middle school program called Thinkabit. And to give you some numbers, at any given time in the MES, we have almost 300 high school students and 3,000 middle school students over the course of a year that we work with for Thinkabit. Again, Detroit Public School students. When did you, I mean, is this because of STEM? Is this how it started originally? Or have you been sort of engaged in this prior to STEM? Well, we've been working, the MES has been around, for example, and working with Detroit for over a decade, about 11 or 12 years or so. Oh, wow. Okay. But we felt for a long time, the College of Engineering, that we needed to cast a wide net uh, and have a nice wide funnel to, frankly, dispel many myths about engineering and make engineering more and technology in general more accessible to people. Uh, show that it's there's creative aspect of things. Show, for example, it's not just for one type of person who comes from one background, but it's really for everybody. Frankly, show that it's people first engineering. It's about addressing the needs of society. And that a appeals to a lot of people. So we want to make sure that we brought, if you will, the humanity of engineering to bear and to focus so that students look at this and they say, this is a way, and I can contribute, make my community, my society better by entering a field in engineering. Yeah, uh, it's funny. This is a side note, but like my parents were immigrants and neither one even went to eighth grade and English wasn't their first language. But I wish I would have been exposed to some of these things. I'm so glad you're doing this, you know, especially with all these different populations, you know, in, in this era of sort of like TikTok and a lot of other things. People still need to understand deep dive learning because it's just everyone assumes their phone is going to work, but it's engineers really building all this connectivity we're having globally. And that's how we're going to get out of like climate change and things like that is through engineers and, you know, in a lot of different fields like this. But uh, anyway, sorry, take you on a side note. Um, a couple other things too. You When you and I were talking, um, you also... I mentioned to you, and then you surprised me. I said, yeah, we've got a person we're going to probably be interviewing from Orbian Space Tech. Mm -hmm. And you said, oh, yeah, yeah, I know who they are. And why don't you tell us how you know them? 
Yeah, so Orbion uh, Space Technologies in Houghton, Michigan, the Upper Peninsula or so, and it was founded by uh, Professor Brad King. And I know Brad King because not only was he one of my undergraduates here at the University of Michigan, he ended up becoming uh, one of my PhD students and graduated. Maybe my second or third PhD student, as a matter of fact, uh, that I graduated or so. Uh, so Orbion is, is a great success story for Michigan. Uh, it's sort of like when you ask the question, why would you have a landlocked state have uh, naval architecture and marine engineering? You could ask the question, why would a state like Michigan be strong in aerospace? But it turns out we are pretty strong in aerospace. And so what Orbion is doing is they're building small but, but mighty plasma thrusters for small and medium-sized satellites. Uh, they've received over $30 million of funding, and they employ 40 engineers, including another one of my uh, PhD students, Dr. Scott Hall. And Scott, it's an interesting story. Scott used to work at NASA and left NASA to move to the Upper Peninsula to work at Orbion. And Scott worked on that 2017 world record Mars engine prototype that I talked about. That was his PhD thesis. So he's literally working on a thruster that's probably about, I don't know, 500 times less powerful than what he did his dissertation on. But that's because you can scale these thrusters over a wide range. And so it's really a great story about have, having a high-tech company like Orbion here, frankly, not only in Michigan, but in the UP. It's a great story. Well, you know, and I just a little bit of inside baseball, but uh, I don't know if everybody knows how a PhD works, but you have to have advisors, right? And so just can you give a quick 30 seconds about how you had to be probably an advisor for all these people, right? Uh, yeah, that, that's right. So in, in mo so the, the PhD is a little different than any other fields. Typically, a PhD takes about five years or so. The first two years, you're taking courses like you would for a master's degree or a bachelor's degree or so, but they're, of course, very advanced courses, you might imagine. And then you have to study for the dreaded qualifying exam, <laughs> Uh, and that varies by department. But once you pass the qualifying exam, you become what's called a candidate. And uh, an important element of PhD education is the pursuit of research, at least in STEM fields, towards what's called the doctoral dissertation. So a dissertation is a book, basically. It's a 100, 200, 300 page book. And what it does, it details the original work that you've done in a certain area. So it's not regurgitating other people's work. You have to contribute something new to the field, if you will. And so how it works is that typically we have funding in this, in Scott's case, Dr. Scott Hall's case from NASA to work on this X3 plasma thruster. And for his dissertation research, he was literally building, testing, refining, analyzing the data that came out of the experiments for this plasma thrusters, both in Ann Arbor and Cleveland, Ohio. And, you know, even though you sort of said it like three or four different ways, but do you have a quick sentence or two of what you tell your 17-year-old self now that you've sort of had this fantastic sort of career? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, I would say that uh, try different things. Um, also talk to a lot of different people who are doing a lot of different things and trying to understand what makes them tick. Um, try to uh, find people who inspire you and try to understand how uh, they got to where they are and always assume good intentions in people. And I, I, I think one of the things that's helped me 
in my career, others can judge whether or not it's been a good career or not so far, is I tend to have a sunny disposition, shall we say, <laughs> have full view of things. And, and I like that. I, and that's maybe how I'm wired, if you will. But I think assuming good intentions and looking for the uh, sunny side of any type of situation, easier said than done. But if one can do that, I think one comes out of situations on balance um, ahead. So speaking of sunny side, your last question is, even though you're from New Jersey, I think originally, uh, where you've lived in Michigan now, you said 30 years, right? At least. What do you like best about living in the state? I love the diversity of the state in myriad ways. I like the diversity in terms of um, different type of um, geological and geographical diversity. I mean, the, the lakes are just amazing. Uh, I love the fact that Ann Arbor is a small city. Detroit is a not so small city. I love the farms. Uh, I love the UP, go camping there all the time and so on and so forth. And of course, the water and the dunes and everything like that. I think that's just wonderful. But I also love the fact that the state of Michigan has a very diverse population. Um, you have a lot of rural folks, urban folks. You have uh, people from different uh, backgrounds. You have a lot of transplants, especially that come to Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, so it's it's just a rich environment to be in. And I like to say the thing about Ann Arbor I like, it's got a lot of cool different neighborhoods. I says it has a lot of nooks and crannies. <laughs> well, once again, uh, our guest today was Dr. Alec Gallimore, and he is the Dean of Engineering at the University of Michigan. Also a rocket scientist, as you could tell, but uh, we appreciate you, Alec, taking the time to do this today. And maybe we get you back on the show sometime in the future, because I'm sure there's a ton of other projects you probably didn't get a chance to get to, too. Ed, thank you. I enjoyed myself. And uh, uh, anytime you want me back, I'll be happy to join you. Join us next week where our guest is going to be Ray Machek. He's the president of The Standing Company, a unique company that helps people with disabilities. The Michigan Opportunity is brought to you by the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. Join us and make your mark where it matters. Visit michiganbusiness.org forward slash radio to put your plans in motion. 